The sermon text this morning is from the book of Psalms, chapter 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heavens. When I was a kid growing up in the suburbs of Atlanta, we often watched the local evening news as a family. Really exciting stuff here. But um, one night stands out in my mind, there was a child in the Atlanta area who had been abducted, but in really short order had been rescued and returned to his parents. So we're sitting here watching this as a family. They ended their report. Camera goes back to the anchor man, a guy we had never seen before. He was new on the news. And he said... In response to this story, praise the Lord. And then he goes on to tell about the events of the day. Me and my brothers looked at each other. Me and my mom and dad were like, did he just say that? We didn't live out in the country. This was the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people watching. It's a live broadcast. It's really remarkable. Never saw that guy in the news again. I... Who knows what happened, but we just assumed he lost his job for uttering those three words. Well, we can debate how best a Christian can be a faithful witness in the workplace. How do you wisely navigate uh, such things? Uh, but that debate aside, uh, there was something very good and fitting in his response. It was right to acknowledge and give credit to God, to commend God for what had happened. He said, praise the Lord. How often are those words upon your lips? Maybe it's a phrase you sometimes casually mention, but really, you're saying something that's at the center of God's purpose for all things. God is and will forever be infinitely worthy of worship. And here in Psalm 148, everyone and everything in all the universe is called upon to render him praise. Well, this fall, our men's and women's Bible studies will be looking through the book of Psalms. And so we thought it timely as we are in between sermon series to preach a psalm. The Psalms are a collection of 150 poems which were intended to be sung when when the people of God, when Israel gathered together for the corporate worship of God, not all in one sitting, of course, but each psalm uh, according to different occasions. Our English title for the book comes from the Greek word psalmos, which means song. So the Psalter, as we call it, is a hymn book for God's people. 
The Psalms express a wide range of emotions, sorrow over sin, thanksgiving to God, uh, expressions of dependence on God, crying out for his help, the joyful adoration of God. They help us pray. You know, we don't often know how to pray, what to pray. Well, God has been kind to give us a record of his people actually talking to him. We understand that the Bible is God's word to us and no less the Psalms, but the Psalms give us the unique vantage point of God's people speaking to him. So we have a model here of how to commune with God, how to come to God in worship and all the varying experiences of life. So this book is a great gift to us. The Psalms don't merely express human emotion, but they should shape them. So how do I trust God when I'm passing through something really hard? It's not, it wouldn't be natural to trust God in such times. Or how do I find joy in God when I seem to delight more in the things of the world? Well, reading and singing, meditating, praying the Psalms help us get there. So let's look closely at Psalm 148. The main phrase, the main idea should come across loud and clear. Praise the Lord. You notice the the all capital letters there in the word Lord. That should key you in that the word Yahweh is being used in the text. Yahweh is how God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 3. Uh, So when we read praise the Lord in the Bible, in all caps, uh, we're reading praise Yahweh. And the phrase taken together in Hebrew is is just hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. And you you hear the Yah there at the end, hallelujah. So that's just the shortened form of, of Yahweh. John Piper, he helpfully shared what he likes to do when he sings a song with hallelujah in it. He'll tell himself, no, I don't praise you, Bel, or Nebo, or Molech or Rimon, or Dagon, or Chemosh. I turn from you with disdain to Yah. I praise Yah. Hallelujah. So think about that next time you sing a song with hallelujah in it. It's worth noting that the last five psalms all begin and end with the same singular phrase, praise the Lord. So the Psalter ends with five hallelujah psalms. And that is a really appropriate way to conclude the psalm book for God's people. So Psalm 148 kind of works like Google Earth. I don't think anybody uses Google Earth anymore, but it was a big deal 20 years ago. Uh, So you remember you open it up and there's the earth hanging there in space. You type in your address and you begin your descent all the way down to that little point on the globe. Well, the author of Psalm 148, he's going to take us on a similar journey. Verse 1 is the starting point, praise the Lord from the heavens. So our gaze is first caught up in the sky and space and even the spiritual realm beyond. And that takes us through verse 6. And then in verse 7, we read, praise the Lord from the earth. And so we read of the ocean and precipitation and mountains and animals and people. That takes us through verse 13. And then finally in verse 14, a special mention is made of God's covenant people, Israel, and what he has done for them. So if you're taking notes, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, The Lord should be praised from the heavens, from the earth, and from his people. And in each case, the psalmist gives us reasons why. So that's the general structure of the psalm. I'd like to walk through each section and make some observations. 
and then I have some points of application for us at the end. So first, Yahweh should be praised from the heavens. In the first six verses, we read the word praise nine times. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. It's like a hammer. Praise, praise, praise. That's how He opens. And you see how the praise is personally directed to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Praise Him, not to His angels, not to any part of His creation, but to Him. We know people have been tempted to worship angels. We see that happen in the Bible a few times. The angel has to stand them on their feet and correct them. Last chapter of the Bible, in fact, the Apostle John falls down to worship an angel uh, who had showed him what was to come. The angel says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And history is full of examples of people who worship the sun and the moon, maybe even the clouds. You see that the last part of verse 4, the waters above the heavens. We know pagans looked to the stars to tell the future. Well, all of that is dashed away in the first six verses. The objects of pagan worship are summoned to worship Yahweh. And isn't that a wonderful turn of events. You can just imagine God bellowing down from heaven. People, the things you worship, worship me. I created them. What are you doing? And, and that's, that's exactly where the psalmist is going to go. He grounds heavenly praise in the fact that God created the heavens and everything in them. The text says he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and there's the sun, and there's the moon. God says in Genesis 1, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, and it was so. So for the kids here today, maybe you've had your parents read you the big picture story Bible by David Helm. Uh, towards the beginning, it says this, Do you know how God created everything? Simply by speaking words. Imagine making the world with words, strong words, powerful words. That's good for mom and dad to hear as well. The Lord created everything in the heavens by speaking them into existence. He created them, he sustains them, he governs them, and therefore all of them are summoned to worship, and not one star is missing. I think scientists tell us that there's a septillion stars in the universe, one with 24 zeros after it. I don't know how they know that, but the point is not one is missing. All you shining stars, all his angels, all his hosts. So the unifying principle here is, is this. If it is created, animate or not, it has a duty to praise the Lord. You remember John's vision in Revelation 4 where these heavenly creatures never cease night or day to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So we can understand how conscious, intelligent beings like angels could praise the Lord. But what about stars? Uh, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his 
handiwork. Well, how does that work? How do the heavens declare? How does the sky proclaim? How do the stars praise the Lord? Well, by doing just what he wants them to do, by design. They must offer praise to God by their sheer existence. Stars shine. You see that in verse 3, all you shining stars. So we sing twinkle, twinkle, little star to our kids, but really it's one nuclear explosion after another. Those stars are doing what God has designed them to do, to, to reflect back to him his glory. It's what they were made for. What do you think you were made for? The same thing, to reflect back to your creator his immeasurable worth. Let your light shine before others. So the heavens and everything in it is a theater showcasing his glory, drawing everyone who watches further into the worship of God. For example, who can stare into a clear night sky and not be hushed and humbled? The moon and the stars compel us to ponder the God who made them and praise soon erupts from our lips. If you love God, you want to praise him for his works. Andrew Peterson has a song called, Don't You Want to Thank Someone? And he says, when you see the morning sun burning through a silver mist, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? So this is another aspect of how the angels and the heavenly lights and the sky and the clouds bring praise to God. They they draw our attention to the one who made them and then praise should spring forth. And I think we see this idea even in the structure of the psalm itself. First the heavens ring out the praises of God and then the earth responds. So we'll look at that now. So remember, Google Earth. Uh, We've been with the angels in heaven praising the Lord. We've moved on to the sun and the moon and the stars and and, and even down to the clouds. And now we're going to fly down so fast that everything gets really blurry, just like on your computer screen. We're going down in the depths. We're at the bottom of the ocean, verse 7. And we're going to work our way back up. Praising the Lord from the earth begins with the great sea creatures and all deeps. So perhaps you've heard of the, the trench in the Pacific Ocean that has a maximum known depth of about seven miles. If you could just imagine that seven miles straight down in water. And God has suited creatures to actually live down there. What's it like? It, well, it's pitch black. It's freezing cold. And I just learned this the other day. There's something called deep sea gigantism where deep-sea-dwelling animals are larger than their shallow water relatives. And we don't really know why. Apparently, the deeper you go, the bigger the creature. We're talking 30-foot squids, giant spider crabs, jellyfish that are as long as your house is tall. And this, this trench itself, you could drop Mount Everest into it, and its peak would still be a mile underwater. God has made an astounding world as a display of his glory. So you see the psalmist, he's presenting this comprehensive, colossal picture of creation to highlight the infinite worth and glory of God. That's how he's wired the world. One Bible scholar, W.S. Plummer, commenting on this psalm, he wrote this in 1867. 
on what an immense scale has God planned creation, even this world itself. Let anyone think of the amazing caverns in the ocean, of the paths in the sea, of the depths never sounded by the mariner, and if he learns no more, he may surely learn this, that the Creator works on a scale of magnificence. Indeed, praise the Lord. So up out of the ocean we go into the air, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, doing what? What does it say? Fulfilling his word. So whatever falls from the sky is not haphazard. That flaming bolt of lightning is doing the bidding of God. This reminds us again of verse 6. He established them. So stars don't just wander in space wherever they want. And neither do tornadoes. Nothing in nature, not in space, not in the atmosphere, not in the depths of the sea is due to random, chaotic processes. No, the Lord commands, establishes, and he gives decrees. So he should be praised. So now on to land and up the mountains we go with the fruit trees and cedars, verse 9. All of them praising the Lord in accordance with their natures by their sheer existence. It's why apples taste good. It's why cedars look so majestic. It's why snow-capped mountains fill us with awe. It's why lightning can be so beautiful and terrifying at the same time. The glory of God is on display, and he deserves every ounce of praise they can give. So next time you're at a restaurant with a friend, maybe this afternoon, ask them why their cheeseburger tastes so good. How can we eat it to the praise of God? Be a good discussion. Talking about burgers, our next stop as we travel through creation is the beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. So again, the psalmist is comprehensive in his call to worship both wild and domestic animals, insects on the ground and birds in the air. They have a voice in this chorus of praise. Nothing escapes this summons, whether it moves or chirps or tweets, every animal is commanded to praise the Lord. So tell your dog this afternoon, you better get to it. Praise your creator. Seriously though, any enjoyment or comfort or benefit we find in a pet or really any animal, it's by God's good design. They are doing what their master in heaven created them to do to the praise of his name. So finally, we come to people. We come to people, you and I, right now, living and breathing. You, you, you put your hand on, on your wrist. You feel that rhythmic pulse. Each beat is given by God. We ought to ask, what am I doing with them? We have been created by him. He sustains us. He owns us. And so every human being, regardless of status, is called to worship this God. Kings, princes, rulers, the young, the old, all peoples, Haitians and the Chinese, young men and young women, the elderly and little kids, all of us. You may be impressed by the president and unimpressed by a plumber, but the social pecking order has zero relevance here, we talk about equality these days. This is real equality. Everyone bows the knee. None are too high and none are too low to praise God. Let them praise the name 
of the Lord. Note that, praise the name. We're not summoned to worship some vague notion of a supernatural being. No, praise the name of the Lord. We worship God in how He has revealed Himself to us. We don't have license to fashion God to be what we want or to worship God on our own terms. Verse 13 says, For His name alone is exalted. Yahweh will have no rivals. His majesty is above earth and heaven. So yes, there are prestigious kings who rule, uh, but they are just kings of the earth, rulers of the earth. We see that in verse 11. You know, President Biden and all the due honor of his office is still subjected to the limitations of the earth. He has an allotted area of authority and no more. But the grandeur of Yahweh towers above the earth. You see that word above. God's majesty is above earth and even heaven. Isaiah 40, 22. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. The vastness of space is but a tent for God to dwell in. He is enthroned above and we're like crickets below. Isaiah says the nations are like a drop from a bucket in God's estimation. His majesty, his greatness is incalculable. Spurgeon said there is more glory in God personally than in all his works united. So you might think the psalmist could end with verse 13. He has provided us a feast of praise that has spanned the entire universe. It's all-encompassing. Just count how many times you see the word all. All angels, all his hosts, all you shining stars, all deeps, all hills, all cedars, all livestock, all peoples, all rulers. But there yet remains a special group that sits atop the scale of worship. In fact, the psalmist presents what God has done for them as another reason why the nations should praise the Lord. What has he done? He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Well, we know the horn was a symbol of, of power and strength. Now you think of the uh, horn of a bull. A bull is a powerful creature. So if a horn was lifted up, it was a public assertion of power. And perhaps the psalmist is thinking about Israel's return from exile, what God did for them there. Or more generally, the many times God delivered his people throughout history. We just learned about that in the book of Judges. We know every deliverance of God's people in history is a pointer to something else. Regardless, the Lord has provided something for his people that they do not have in and of themselves. So God's redemptive love is on display. His majesty is above earth and heaven, yet he has stooped down to draw near to his people in their weakness and their lowest state. He has raised up a horn for them, which the nations will praise God for. Through Israel, the nations have reason to rejoice. Remember what God promised Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Israel, as God's covenant people, they were intended to be a light to the nations, reflecting the glory of God, drawing the Gentiles to worship God. They failed. 
but God's promise endured. He raised up a horn. In the first chapter of Luke, Zacharias, father of John the Baptist, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us and the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves, was raised up for his people as the true and better Israel. And now those who have faith are sons of Abraham. That's Galatians 3, 7. So that, that's us, even us, mere Gentiles, have a place in this chorus of praise a horn has been raised up for his church. Ephesians 2.13, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, the implications of this text on our lives are more than I could possibly explain, but I'll give you three as we wrap up. First, treasure corporate worship. Yes, meet with God privately. We Certainly encourage that at this church, your, your own devotional time and the word and prayer. But if, if, if you think of that as the sum total of your spirituality, just you and God in the woods somewhere or, or you and God on the couch at home, you're mistaken and, and you're missing out on one of the greatest blessings God has given us. The, the saints gathered together for corporate worship. We need each other far more then we realize the Christian life was meant to be lived out in community. And if you're not here, you're, you're impoverishing yourself and you're hurting us. Your absence is felt. In contrast, just look at the psalmist. He's almost beside himself calling others, even nature itself, to join him in the worship of his creator. So this is not a solitary affair. So treasure corporate worship. Number two, rejoice. My application is very simple this morning. Treasure corporate worship. Secondly, rejoice. There is a joyful preoccupation with God in Psalm 148. But that describes your life. A joyful preoccupation with God. Do the praises of God come quickly to your lips? Are you seeking to develop a genuine delight in God? Yes, there are times of deep sorrow and lament. The rest of the Psalms teach us that. I'm not saying buck up and smile like some Christians seem to communicate. I don't mean to be simplistic, but, but I would say if you find that you, you're regularly giving yourself over to, to a melancholy, despondent frame of mind, you need to learn how to rejoice. We just learned about J.R. Packer uh, last Sunday in his book, Rediscovering Holiness, he says this, do not become a victim of your temperament. Character is what you do with your temperament. Nobody can say, hey, this is just the way I am. No, no, God, God is doing a transforming work in us. We're called to change. So really, this is about the pursuit of holiness. You might say, hey, I, I, I'm a generally upbeat type of person. That's not my problem, what you're talking about. But hey, I'm in some tough circumstances right now, and I just can't worship on Sunday. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. He, he's still commanded and created. He still established you and sustained you. He has raised up a horn for you. 
As Christians, we always have reason to rejoice. It may be through tears. We can praise God even as we lament if it is offered to him. In fact, the Hebrew title of the book of Psalms is actually praises, which is really interesting if you consider the diversity of the Psalms that were given. You know, how long, O oh Lord, we cry out to him. And yet the title of the entire book is praises. Number three, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. When you meditate on Psalm 148, you see afresh how dreadful sin really is. That, that any man, woman, or angel would dare interrupt this symphony of praise. Sin is an outrage compared to this chorus of praise. So we know there are millions of people around the world who revere the cow. But here the cow is called upon to worship Yahweh. You know, if, if only the animals could talk to us. Again, we see man's wicked inversion of worship. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. But before we roll our eyes at the Hindu world, we do well to reflect on how we in the West have robbed God of his due praise. What do we have that we have not received? Degrees, jobs, cars, homes, children, bank accounts, professional achievements, each one a, a gift from a good God in heaven, but how often do we acknowledge his kindness? We work ourselves into a frenzy, bowing down to these things, finding our identity in these things, finding our life in them. We behave as if our very lives are, are, are on the line over these things. When scripture teaches us that our lives are hidden with Christ in God, so this is a call to repentance, to, to, to repent of valuing something else more than God, to, to realign your heart to the one whose majesty is above earth and heaven and to offer him your praise and your thanks. So worship, yes, it is singing. Indeed, it is singing, but not singing alone. It is, it is a rendering of your whole life. It's finding your, your life by, by losing it Finding your life by losing it for the sake of Jesus Christ. So don't you want your life, your voice, to find a place in this chorus of praise? For God to pick up your voice in this chorus. One conclusion, I, I just, I want, to li I want to read to you a scene uh, that uh, in heaven that John witnessed. Uh, there was a scroll whom no one in heaven was worthy enough to open until a lamb stepped forward, standing as though it had been slain. And he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And then all of heaven erupts in euphoria. Let me read it to you. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. No corner of creation is left without a voice to praise Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, worship him well. Let's take a few moments to ponder these things and then I'll pray for us.